Part One of The Black-Bearded Barbarian by Mary Esther Miller MacGregor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One: Splitting Rocks. Up in the stony pasture field behind the barn, the boys had been working all the long afternoon. Nearly all, that is, for being boys, they had managed to mix a good deal of fun with their labour. But now they were tired of both work and play, and wondered audibly, many times over, why they were not yet called home to supper. The work really belonged to the Mackay boys, but like Tom Sawyer they had made it so attractive that several volunteers had come to their aid. Their father was putting up a new stone house near the old one down there behind the orchard, and the two youngest of the family had been put at the task of breaking the largest stones in the field. It meant only to drag some underbrush and wood from the forest skirting the farm, pile them on the stones, set fire to them, and let the heat do the rest. It had been grand sport at first, they all voted, better than playing shinny and almost as good as going fishing. In fact, it was a kind of free picnic where one could play at Indians all day long. But as the day wore on, the picnic idea had languished. The stone-breaking grew more and more to resemble hard work. The warm spring sunset had begun to colour the western sky. The meadow-larks had gone to bed, and the stone-breakers were tired and ravenously hungry, as hungry as only wolves or country boys can be. The visitors suggested that they ought to be going home, "'Hold on, Danny. Just till this one breaks,' said the older Mackay boy, as he set a burning stick to a new pile of brush. "'This'll be a dandy. It's the last, too. They're sure to cause to supper before it's time to do another.' The new fire, roaring and snapping, sending up showers of sparks and filling the air with the sweet odour of burning cedar, proved too alluring to be left. The company squatted on the ground before it, hugging their knees and watching the blue column of smoke go straight up into the coloured sky. It suggested a campfire in war times, and each boy began to tell what great and daring deeds he intended to perform when he became a man. Jimmy, one of the visitors who had been most enthusiastic over the picnic side of the day's work, announced that he was going to be a sailor. He would command a fleet on the high seas, so he would, and capture pirates, and grow fabulously wealthy on prize money. Danny, who was also a guest, declared his purpose one day to lead a band of rough riders to the western plains, where he would kill Indians and escape fearful deaths by the narrowest hairbreadth. "'Maybe I'm going to be President of Canada some day,' said one youngster, poking his bare toes as near as he dared to the flames. Though hoots of derision, this was entirely too tame to be even considered as a career. "'What are you going to be, G.L.?' inquired the biggest boy of the smallest. The others looked at the little fellow and laughed. George Mackay was the youngest of the group, and was a small, wiry youngster with a pair of flashing eyes lighting up his thin little face. He seemed far too small and insignificant to even think about a career. But for all the difference in their size and age, the bigger boys treated little George with a good deal of respect. For somehow he never failed to do what he set out to do. He always ran races. He was never anywhere but at the head of his class. He was never known to be afraid of anything in field or forest or school ground. He was the hardest worker at home or at school, and by sheer pluck he managed to do everything that boys bigger and older and stronger could do. So when Danny asked, 
What are you going to be, Jiao? The other boys laughed at the small, thin little body. They respected the daring spirit it held and listened for his answer. He's going to be a giant and go off with a show, cried one, and they all laughed again. Little Jiel laughed too, but he did not say what he intended to do when he grew big. Down in his heart he held a far greater ambition than the others dreamed of. It was too great to be told. So great he scarcely knew what it was himself. So he only shook his small head and closed his lips tightly, and the rest forgot him and chattered on. Away beyond the dark woods the sunset shone red and gold between the black tree trunks. The little boy gazed at it wonderingly. The sight of those mornings and evening glories always stirred his child's soul and made him long to go away. Away he knew not where, to do great and glorious deeds. The Mackay boy's grandfather had fought at Waterloo, and little George Leslie, the youngest of six, had heard many, many tales of that gallant struggle, and every time they had been told him, he had silently resolved that some day he too would do just such brave deeds as his grandfather had done. As the boys talked on, and the little fellow gazed at the sunset and dreamed, the big stone cracked in two. The fire died down, and still there came no welcome call to supper from any of the farmhouses in sight. The Mackay boys had been trained in a fine old-fashioned Canadian home, and did not dream of quitting work until they were summoned, but the visitors were merely visitors, and could go home when they liked. The future admiral of the pirate-killing fleet declared he must go and get supper, or he'd eat the grass. He was so hungry. The coming premier of Canada and the Indian slayer agreed with him, and they all jumped the fence and went whooping away over the soft brown fields towards home. There was just one big stone left. It was a huge boulder, four feet across. We'll never get enough wood to crack that, Geo, declared Isabella. Just can't be done. But little George answered just as anyone who knew his determination would have expected. In school he astonished his teacher by learning everything at a tremendous rate. There was one small word he refused to learn. The little word, can't. His bright eyes flashed now at the sound of it. He jumped upon the big stone and clenched his fist. It's got to be broken, he cried. I won't let it beat me. He leaped down and away he ran toward the woods. His brother caught his spirit and ran too. They forgot they were both tired and hungry. They seized a big limb off a fallen tree and dragged it across the field. They chopped it into pieces and piled it high with plenty of brush upon the big stone. In a few minutes it was all in a splendid blaze, leaping and crackling, and sending the boys' long shadows far across the field. The fire grew fiercer and hotter, and suddenly the big boulder cracked in four pieces, as neatly as though it had been slashed by a giant's sword. Little Jill danced around it and laughed triumphantly. The next moment there came the welcome hoo-hoo from the house behind the orchard, and away the two scampered down the hill toward home and supper. When the day's work of the farmhouse had been finished, the Mackay family gathered about the fire, for the spring evening was chilly. George Leslie sat near his mother, his face full of deep thought. It was the hour for family worship, and always at this time he felt most keenly that longing to do something great and glorious. Tonight his father read of a man who was sending out his army to conquer the world. It was only a little army, just twelve men, but they knew their leader had more power than all the soldiers of the world, and they were not afraid. Though he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. For he added, 
fear ye not, for he would march before them, and they would be sure of victory. The little boy listened with all his might. He did everything that way. Surely this was a story of great and glorious deeds, even better than Waterloo, he felt, and there came to his heart a great longing to go out and fight wrong and put down evil as these men had done. He did not know that the longing was the voice of the great king, calling his young knight to go out and live pure, speak true, right wrong, follow the king. But there came a day when he did understand, and on that day he was ready to obey. When bedtime came, the boys were asked if they had finished their work, and the story of the last big stone was told. Giel would not leave it, the brother explained. The father looked smilingly at little Giel, who still sat, dangling his short legs from his chair and studying the fire. He spoke to his wife in Gaelic. Perhaps the lad will be called on to break a great rock some day. The Lord grant he may do it. The boy looked up wonderingly. He understood Gaelic as well as English, but he did not comprehend his father's words. He had no idea they were prophetic, and that away on the other side of the world, in a land his geography lessons had not yet touched, there stood a great rock, ugly and hard and grim, which he was one day to be called upon to break. Chapter 2 A Voyage of Discovery The steamship America, bound for Hong Kong, was leaving the dock at San Francisco. All was bustle and noise and stir. Friends called a last farewell from the deck. Handkerchiefs waved, many of them wet with tears. The long boom of a gun roared out over the harbour. A bell rang and the signal was given. Up came the anchor, and slowly and with dignity the great vessel moved out of the Golden Gate into the wide Pacific. Crowds stood on the deck to get a last glimpse of home and loved ones, and to wave to friends as long as they could be distinguished. There was one young man who stood apart from the crowd, and who did not wave farewell to anyone. He had come on board with a couple of men. They had gone back to the dock and were lost in the crowd. He seemed entirely alone. He leaned against the deck railing and gazed intently over the widening strip of tumbling waters to the city on the shore. But he did not see it. Instead he saw a Canadian farmhouse, a garden and orchard, and gently sloping meadows hedged in by forest and up behind the barn he saw a stony field where long ago he and his brother and the neighbour boys had broken the stones for the new house. His quick movements, his slim straight figure, and his bright piercing eyes showed he was the same boy who had broken the big rock in the pasture field long before. Just the same boy, only bigger and more man than boy now, for he wore an air of command, and his thin keen face bore a beard, a deep black like his hair, and now he was going away, as he had longed to do when he was a boy, and ahead of him lay the big frowning rock which he must either break or be broken upon. He had learned many things since those days when he had scampered barefoot over the fields or down the road to school. He had been to college in Toronto, in Princeton, and away over in Edinburgh, in the old homeland where his father and mother were born. And all through his life that call to go and do great deeds for the king had come again and again. He had been determined to obey it when he was but a little lad at school. He had encountered many big stones in his way, which he had to break before he'd go on, but the biggest stone of all lay across his path when college was over, and he was ready and anxious to go away as a missionary. 
Presbyterian Church of Canada had never yet sent out a missionary to a foreign land, and some of the good old men bade George Mackay stay at home and preach the gospel there. But as usual he conquered. Everyone who saw him knew he would be a great missionary. If he were only given a chance. At last the General Assembly gave its consent, and now, in spite of all stones in the way, he was bound for China and ready to do anything the king commanded. Land was beginning to fade away into a grey mist. The November wind was damp and chill. He turned and went down to his stateroom. He sat down in his little steamer trunk, and for the first time the utter loneliness and the uncertainty of this voyage came over him. He took up his Bible and turned to the flyleaf. There he read the inscription, presented to Rev. G. L. Mackay, first missionary of the Canadian Presbyterian Church to China by the Foreign Mission Committee as a parting token of their esteem when about to leave his native land for the sphere of his future labours among the heathen. William McLaren, Cumberland, Ottawa, 9th of October, 1871, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Psalm 71. It was a moment of severe trial to the young soldier, but he turned to the psalm marked on the flyleaf of his Bible, and he read it again and again. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The beautiful words gave him comfort. Homesickness, loneliness, and fears for the future all vanished. He was going out to an unknown land where dangers and perhaps death awaited him. But the Lord would be his keeper and nothing could harm him. Twenty-six days on the Pacific, and a stormy voyage it was, for the Pacific does not always live up to her beautiful name, and she tossed the America about in a shocking manner. But the voyage did not seem long to George Mackay. There were other missionaries on board with whom he had become acquainted, and he had long delightful talks with them, and they taught him many things about his new work. He was the same busy G.L. he had been when a boy, always working working, and he did not waste a moment on the voyage. There was a fine library on the ship, and he studied the books on China until he knew more about the religion of that country than did many of the Chinese themselves. One day, as he was poring over a Chinese history, someone called him hastily to come on deck. He threw down his book and ran upstairs. The whole ship was in a joyous commotion. His friend pointed toward the horizon, and away off there against the sky stood the top of a snow-capped peak, Fujiyama the majestic, sacred mountain of Japan. It was a welcome sight after the long ocean voyage, and the hours they lay in Yokohama harbour were full of enjoyment. Every sight was thrilling and strange to young Mackay's western eyes. The harbour fairly swarmed with noisy, shouting, chattering Japanese boatmen. He wondered why they seemed so familiar till it suddenly dawned on him that their queer rice-straw coats made them look like a swarm of Robinson Crusoes who had just been rescued from their islands. When he landed he found things still funnier. The streets were noisier than the harbour. Through them rolled large, heavy wooden carts, pulled and pushed by men with much grunting and groaning. Passed in worlds what looked like overgrown baby carriages, also pulled by men, and each containing a big grown-up human baby. It was so pretty, too and so enchanting that the young missionary would fain have remained there. But China was still farther on. 
so when the America again set sail, he was on board. Away they sailed, farther and farther east, or was it west? He often asked himself that question in some amusement as they approached the coast of China. They entered a long winding channel and steamed this way and that, until one day they sailed into a fine broad harbour with a magnificent city rising far up the steep sides of a hill. It was an oriental city, and therefore strange to the young traveller. But for all that, there seemed something familiar in the fine European buildings that lined the streets, and something still more homelike in that which floated high above them, something that brought a thrill to the heart of the young Canadian the red-crossed banner of Britain. It was Hong Kong, the great British port of the east, and here he decided to land. No sooner had the travellers touched the dock than they were surrounded by a yelling, jostling crowd of Chinese coolies, all shouting in an outlandish gibberish for the privilege of carrying the barbarians' baggage. A group gathered round Mackay, and in their eagerness began hammering each other with bamboo poles. He was well-nigh bewildered when above the din sounded the welcome music of an English voice. "'You Mackay, from Canada?' He whirled round joyfully. It was Dr. E. J. Eitel, a missionary from England. He had been told that the young Canadian would arrive on the America and was there to welcome him. Although the Canadian Presbyterian Church had as yet sent out no missionaries to a foreign land, the Presbyterian Church of England had many scattered over China. They were all hoping that the new recruit would join them, and invited him to visit different mission stations and see where he would like to settle. So he remained that night in Hong Kong as Dr. Eitel's guest, and the next morning he took a steamer for Canton. Here he was met on the pier by an old fellow student of Princeton University, and the two old college friends had a grand reunion. He returned to Hong Kong shortly, and next visited Swato. As they sailed into the harbour, he noticed two Englishmen rowing out toward them in a sampan. No sooner had the ship's ladder been lowered than the two sprang out of their boat and clambered quickly on deck. To Mackay's amazement, one of them called out, Is Mackay of Canada on board? Mackay of Canada sprang forward delighted and found his two new friends to be Mr. Hobson of the Chinese Imperial Customs and Dr. Thompson of the English Presbyterian Mission in Swatow. Missionaries here gave the stranger a warm welcome. At every place he had visited there had awaited him a cordial invitation to stay and work, and now at Swato he was urged to settle down and help them. There was plenty to be done, and they would be delighted to have his help. But for some reason, Mackay scarcely knew why himself, he wanted to see another place. Away off the southern eastern coast of China lies a large island called Formosa. It is separated from the mainland by a body of water called the Formosa Channel. This is in some places eighty miles wide, in others almost two hundred. Mackay had often heard of Formosa, even before coming to China, and knew it was famed for its beauty. Even his name shows this. Long, long years before, some navigators from Portugal sailed to this beautiful island. They had stood on the deck of their ship as they approached it, and were amazed at its loveliness. They saw lofty green mountains piercing the clouds. They saw silvery cascades tumbling down their sides, flashing in the sunlight and below terraced plains sloping down to the sea, covered with waving bamboo or with little water-covered rice-fields. It was all so delightful that no wonder they cried, Ila Formosa! Ila Formosa! Beautiful Isle! Beautiful Isle! Since that day, the beautiful Isle, perhaps the most charming in all the world, has been called Formosa. And somehow Mackay longed to see this 
beautiful isle before he decided where he was going to preach the gospel and so when the kind friends at swateau said stay and work with us he always answered i must first see formosa so one day he sailed away from the mainland toward the beautiful isle he landed at takao in the south of the island just about christmas time but formosa was green the weather was hot and he could scarcely believe that at home in oxford county ontario they were flying over the snow to the music of sleigh bells on new year's day he met a missionary of this south formosa field named dr ritchie he belonged to the presbyterian church of england which had a fine mission there for nearly a month mackay visited with him and studied the language and while he visited and worked there the missionaries told him of the northern part of the island no person was there to tell all those crowded cities of jesus christ and his love it would be lonely for him there it would be terribly hard work but it would be a grand thing to lay the foundations be the first to tell those people the good news the young missionary thought and one day he looked up from the chinese book he was studying and said to dr ritchie i have decided to settle in north formosa and dr ritchie's quick answer was god bless you mackay as soon as the decision was made another missionary dr dixon who was with mr ritchie decided to go to north formosa with a young man and show him over the ground so early in the month of march in the year eighteen seventy two the three men set off by steamship to sail for Danshui, a port in north Formosa. They were two days making the voyage, and a tropical storm pitched the small vessel hither and thither, so that they were very much relieved when they sailed up to the mouth of the Danshui River. It was low tide, and a bare sandbar stretched across the mouth of the harbour, so the anchor was dropped and they waited until the tide should cover the bar and allow them to sail in. This wait gave the travellers a fine opportunity to see the country the view from this harbour of the beautiful island was an enchanting one before them toward the east rose tier upon tier of magnificent mountains stretching north and south down their sloping sides tumbled sparkling cascades and here and there patches of bright green showed where there were tea plantations farther down were stretches of grass and groves of lovely feathery bamboo and between these groves stretched what seemed to be silvery lakes with the reflection of the great mountains in them they were really the famous rice-fields of Formosa, at this time of the year all under water. There were no fences round their little lake-fields. They were of all shapes and sizes, and were divided from each other by little green-fringed dikes or walls. Each row of fields was lower than the last until they came right down to the sea-level, and all lay blue and smiling in the blazing sunlight. As the young missionary stood spellbound, gazing over the lovely fairy-like scene, Mr. Ritchie touched his arm. This is your parish, Mackay, he whispered smilingly. And then for the first time since he had started on his long, long journey, the young missionary felt his spirit at peace. The restlessness that had driven him on from one Chinese port to another was gone. This was indeed his parish. Suddenly outswung a signal. The tide had risen. Up came the anchor, and away they glided over the now submerged sandbar into the harbour. A nearer view showed greater charms in the beautiful isle. On the south at their right lay the great Guanyin mountain, towering seventeen hundred feet above them, clothed in tall grass and groves of bamboo, banyan, and fir trees of every conceivable shade of green. Nestling at its feet were little villages almost buried in trees. Slowly the ship drifted along, passing here a queer fishing village close to the sandy shore, yonder a lighthouse, there a battered 
Chinese fort rising from the top of a hill. And now Tamsui came in sight, the new home of the young missionary. It seemed to him that it was the prettiest and the dirtiest place he had ever seen. The town lay along the bank of the river at the foot of a hill. This bluff rose abruptly behind it to a height of two hundred feet. On its face stood a queer-looking building. It was red in color, solid and weather-worn. Above it floated the grand old flag of Britain. "'It's an old Dutch fort,' explained Mr. Ritchie. "'Left there since they were in the island. It is the British consulate now. There next to it is the consul's residence.' It was a handsome house, just below the fort and surrounded by lovely gardens, but down beneath it on the shore was the most interesting place to the newcomer town of Danshui proper, or Hou-bi, as the Chinese called it. The foreigners landed and made their way up the street. To the two from the south Formosa, Danshui was like every other small Chinese town, but Mackay had not yet become accustomed to the strange sights and sounds and stranger smells, and his bright eyes were keen with interest. The main thoroughfare wound this way and that, only seven or eight feet wide at its best. It was filled with noisy crowds of men, who acted as if they were on the verge of a terrible fight, but the older missionaries knew that they were merely acting as Chinese crowds always do. On each side were shops, tea shops, rice shops, tobacco shops, and many other kinds, and most numerous of all were the shops where opium, and the greatest curses of Chinese life, was sold. The front wall of each was removed, and the customers stood in the street and dickered with the shopkeeper while at the top of his harsh voice the latter swore by all the gods in China that it was giving the article away at a terrific loss. Through the crowd pushed hawkers, carrying their wares balanced on poles across their shoulders. Boys with trays of Chinese candies and sugarcane yelled their wares above the din. The visitors stumbled along over the rough stones of the pavement till they came to the marketplace. Foreigners were not such a curiosity in Danshui as in the inland towns, and not a great deal of notice was taken of them. Occasionally Mackay could hear the now familiar words of contempt, ugly barbarian, foreign devil from the men that passed them, and one man pointing to Mackay shouted, Ho! The black-bearded barbarian! It was a name the young missionary was destined to hear very frequently. Past opium dens, barber shops, and the drug stores they went, and through the noise and bustle and din of the marketplace. They knew that the inns, judging by the outside, would be filthy, so Mr. Ritchie suggested, as evening was approaching, that they find some comfortable place to spend the night. There was a British merchant in Danshui named Mr. Dodd, whom the missionaries knew. So to him they went, and were given fine quarters in his warehouse. They ate their supper here. From the provisions they had bought in the market, and stretching themselves out on their grass mats, they slept soundly. The next day was Sunday, but the three travellers spent it quietly in the warehouse by the river, studying their Bibles and discussing their proposed trip. They concluded it was best not to provoke the anger of the people against the new missionary by preaching, so they did not go out. Tomorrow they would start southward and take Mackay to the bounds of their mission field, and show him the land that was to be his parish. End of part one.